Hello and welcome back to the Cybersecurity Podcast here at PwC. I'm Chloe Seaton, an ethical hacker in our cybersecurity practice. An announcement though before we start, please fasten your seatbelts and put your seats into the upright position because we're about to take off for our first ever CISO in the Spotlight interview with John White, leader of information and cybersecurity at the British airline Virgin Atlantic. To say that I'm excited would be a bit of an understatement. John has been at Virgin Atlantic for almost a year and has an interesting and diverse career path in IT and cybersecurity across many sectors. We'll be delving into that during this episode and we'll be talking about how CISOs are tackling today's cybersecurity challenges, the cybersecurity priorities at Virgin Atlantic and how to tackle the cyber talent gap. Welcome, John. It's great to have you here. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for having me. So let's not waste any more time and jump straight into it. You're coming up to a year in your role at Virgin Atlantic how would you sum up your time so far good question it's gone very very quickly um I think this is the second time I'm in a a Virgin uh, branded role um having spent some time at Virgin Media before so I walked in the door everything was red it felt very familiar um and instantly I felt like I'm back in the right place so I'm, I'm really pleased to be back in the brand um I've joined at a very interesting time so Coming off the back of a pandemic is not my usual way into a new role. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, it, it, what it's shown is I've, I've joined a, a workforce that's very, very resilient, you know, coming through um, as they have done. Um, so I'm very, very lucky to sort of join on the back of that. Um, if we can make our security as resilient as our people, then we're going to have no problem. But yeah. I think um, any, like any new role, you have plenty to look at plenty of challenges um, but I think the pandemic has paused a lot of what was planned and it's given me an opportunity to have a sort of a fresh look at the strategy which is a great position to be in for someone who's just joined. Yeah that's great and in terms of cybersecurity, you said that you worked in Virgin before and you were back in underneath the brand how has things changed from a cybersecurity perspe- perspective? Like from after the pandemic, there must be some big changes that you've seen, or is is it down to you to implement those? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's many challenges. There are many challenges. I think probably the biggest shift is the working from home, hybrid working um, aspect. A lot of businesses have obviously adjusted to that, and that's kind of a little bit old news now because we're a year on, and everybody's sort of thought about how to address that, but. It's not just been that at Virgin Atlantic. We've also gone into survival mode. We've outsourced a lot of our IT at the same time as doing trying to do digital transformation to make our customer journeys more we want, what we want them to be. Um, so the attack surface has completely changed. You know, it's now moved everywhere rather than in the traditional spots. So that for me is one of the first things that you know a lot of companies have had to address, and we've we've addressed it well. Um, but there's always more to do. Yes. And looking more broader at the role of the CISOs within the cybersecurity industry. So what do you see as the biggest challenges surrounding cybersecurity for CISOs at the moment? So aside from the attack surface getting bigger, um, I would say that for the aviation industry, we are seeing quite a lot of attention from the geopolitical fallout um, from from Russia, Ukraine. Um, So the industry and its supply chain is always a target and you know, we receive threat intelligence on a daily basis that demonstrates how successful those attacks are being. So understanding our attack surface in a changing organisation 
is something that you know, we, we is, is challenging to keep up with. Um, but I think equally making sure that from an internal perspective, we're not contributing to that attack surface through a lot of the transformation we're doing. You know, um, outsourcing IT, digital transformation, they all have a big impact on uh, on the attack surface. And no matter how good your process internally, that's always a challenge to keep up with. I think one of the things that springs to mind when you talk about the new threat landscape given the geopolitical climate is being a CISO, how, how do you manage the, the stress of, the, of that situation? <laughs> but not just yourself personally, but also across the organization. How, how do you let everyone know or reassure them you know, that you within the business are doing your best to try and protect you know, your staff, but your assets as well? Yeah, yeah. it's a daily reassurance task. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing that we have established is uh, a sort of one-page threat advisory, which we send to our senior leadership group. Um, so although we meet on a regular basis and the communications within the group is really good, um, it doesn't hurt to sort of reassure that we're on top of things when uh, when they come out in the news or when one of our suppliers has identified there's, there's an attack or something like that. You know, So we, we send those out to the group. We give a brief overview of what the situation is, what we're doing about it, and what to be vigilant on. Um, I think that really helps just continually reinforce the message that we are addressing these things. So Virgin Atlantic's stated aim is to become the world's most loved travel brand. This is an ambitious aim, but I also think it's a it's a fair one given Virgin Atlantic's position in the market and you've talked about its resilience post-pandemic. In today's climate, we know that digital transformation, and you mentioned it earlier, will of course play a key role in supporting this ambition of yours. But what we would like to know on the podcast is how you see cybersecurity supporting that digital transformation journey that you're going on at Virgin Atlantic and how you're ensuring that you can innovate with confidence as well whilst these cyber threats are ever evolving? How, how do you innovate with confidence? That's a very good question. Um, I think it goes back to some of the fundamentals in the way that you transform things. So whether it's development or whether it's infrastructure, the principles have to be applied top down. So you're secure by design, you know, you're building in that, that, that those mechanisms to protect the organisation and, and give you the visibility and the security team of what's occurring so you can respond quickly. Um, I guess, depending upon the maturity of your organisation, you know, the CICD pipeline is, is key to making sure that those um, good practices are built in. Um, I believe that you should really give those teams as much trust and capability as you possibly can. So I think, you know, scanning your code, making sure that your scripts um, are safe, making sure your repositories are clean. So when you come to do the development side, you know, you're, you're building on confidence rather than having to test at every single point of the process. Um, again, then monitoring the attack surface when things go live, you know, making sure that the whole shift left principle is applied. But I think it's about that sort of trust and verify principle. Mm, yeah. You know, trusting the teams that, that know what they're doing to do what they do best. Yeah. And and for us to have more of a sort of a safety net for them, um, if if you know, if anything was to go wrong. Um 
You mentioned CICD pipeline. Mm. Can you just um, elaborate on that a little further, just for people that are yeah, listeners sure. that might not be aware what that so is? So what we're talking about there really is a secure development life cycle. Mm-hmm. It's taking something from concept through build, through test, into production. Um, you can use whatever terms you like, but secure development life cycle is, is really what we're talking about here. It's, it's how we work with our, um, our development and operational teams to, to make that process as slick and as automated as possible. So giving them the right tools in the right place at the right time is really, really key for success. Mm-hmm. It means security can be a little bit more hands-off, put the trust back into those teams, um, and, and then sort of monitor, I guess, for visibility of anything that we, we need to address. But yeah, it's about giving the teams the autonomy to do what they need to do. Yeah. And I don't know if this question's off piece now. I've so, uh, but what you were saying there, it led me to think of this. One of the things that I always think about within my role is, because you mentioned automation, is could my job be taken over by an automated tool in the future? And I had this conversation with my director recently over in the uh, ethical hacking team in Cardiff, and we were discussing about tools can definitely help and take away you know, some of the overhead, mm-hmm. but you can't... you know. Um, you can't replicate that human interpretation of of whatever the tools are producing, whatever the data is. Yeah. Do you um do you agree with that in your role? Like, how far are you taking automation? Automation is obviously one of the end goals for a lot of processes, but I still believe you need a person to validate the inputs and how it's set up. So the attack surface sort of um, assurance work that we do, we still need to supply all the right information in order to look for the right things. It can't all be automatically discovered. You need a start point, you need a reference point. Mm. And that's where you know people come into the process. Um, so yeah, I think there, there's, a, there's a huge amount we can automate. And I think obviously all the major manufacturers are going that way, you know, security platforms are going that way. That, that takes away a lot of the manual effort that people have to do. But you still need people at the end of the process or start of the process to define what's important to you, where where to look. Yeah. And then ultimately what to do with it afterwards. Definitely. I agree. It, uh, it really grinds my gears when people are like, <laughs> um, oh, your job will just be done by computers in 10 years. And it's like, well, you know, maybe elements, but it's going to it's going to evolve over time. And there will always be that the human need to interpret what's going on and what the tools are doing. Absolutely. So leaning on some of the research that we at PwC have conducted recently, one of our key findings from our latest annual Global Digital Trust Insight Survey is around the need for greater collaboration between the CISO and the rest of the C-suite to better align cyber to the rest of the business. Firstly, would you agree with that finding? And also, could you just shed some light on your own experience on collaborating across the top levels of an organisation? Sure. Um, I would say I agree with that still. A lot of the C-suite in a number of companies still don't feel like they're engaged with their CISO. Um, It's a two-way relationship. They don't feel engaged with us and and we don't feel engaged with them. Um, But I think it does very much depend upon the company. So at Virgin Atlantic, we're very lucky. We've got a CEO who is very engaged in security and challenges me as much as I challenge the C-suite. So it enables me to sort of do the the best I can at all times. Um, But I think it comes back to that communication element so a lot of CISOs I think wait for something big to talk about and I think 
whether that's an incident or uh, a change in strategy, whatever it might be. I don't think you have to wait for something big to talk to your senior leadership team. So whether that's through threat advisories or uh, engagement and awareness sessions, or whether it's just trying to catch them if they offer up a coffee morning, you know, whatever opportunity you've got is an opportunity for you to kind of sell uh, information and cybersecurity to them and the benefits and to try and align where we can to the to the business strategy. We're encouraged to think like owners at Virgin Atlantic, and I think it's a really important thing for security to feel like an owner too. We're not just there as an insurance policy. We're actually there to innovate, enable, protect. So I think it's really important that we, we, we think about all the commercial aspects of what we do as well. Then it helps resonate with each of the directorate's strategies and, and contributing to the overall. So uh, you, you did touch upon it earlier then. It usually takes something for the, for the CISO to kind of sit up and listen to. Something big's happened. And that leads me nicely into the next question um, about ransomware. So this is something whenever I've been in similar board kind of awareness meetings, whenever you mention ransomware, people do sit up because of the destructive impact of ransomware. Mm. How can organisations best protect themselves against ransomware? What are the key things that they should be getting right? I think, first of all, you need to know what protection is in place right now. Endpoint is obviously really key. Um, email protection is very, very important. You know, um, Knowing your attack surface is extremely important. All of those areas that we know as security professionals are the weak points and, and points of entry for, for this kind of malware. Um, ransomware obviously scares the hell out of most senior teams because they watch the news, they can see how destructive it is. So backups and recovery are very, very important. And this is where security teams, the IT team, the service te- you know, service management teams um, and, and critical um, partners all have to come together. You have to know how you're going to respond to this. Yeah, we, we, are, we are no different. You know, we're looking at um, the ransomware resilience elements of our backup systems you know do we have air gapped backups it's no longer viable to have your backups online with the same credentials as you use for everything else there needs to be some um, lines of delineation between you know between capabilities to make it harder for your adversary Um, but i think doing the basics is is 80 percent of of the way there making sure you've got good endpoint protection making sure you've got visibility of what's happening. So whether that's an MDR service that can respond quickly or your own teams internally doing that for you. Um, but it's all about knowing what you've got, protecting it with the basics, making sure it's patched. You know, vulnerability management is still a thing. Um, and that way you're giving yourself the best possible um, chance of reducing the impact. Because I think, you know, it can happen to anybody but it's about reducing the impact of these events that's really key. Yeah, it it can happen to anybody. And I guess, you know, on that same line, what I'm thinking about is when something does happen, how do you broach that conversation? What's what's the thing that you do when you're going into a meeting with with the board to say, you know, this has happened? Um, Give us your advice there (laughs) in that situation, because I can't imagine what it's like, especially, you know, being the CISO for Virgin Atlantic. Yeah. Well, obviously, safety and security is absolutely paramount in any airline. Um, We are no different. We've got a very, very good crisis capability. 
Um, we've had to use it on a number of occasions for different things. Um, information security is, is no different when it comes to how important our readiness is as part of that plan. So we're very much plugged into that crisis management process. You know, there's a dedicated a dedicated area in the building for that 24-7, you know, if things, if things kick off. There's a tiered structure to how we respond, um, you know, and we've got all of the departments have a role to play. They've all got a seat at the table, you know, and, and information security is exactly the same. So it's about having the run books in place to know what to do when, it, when things hit. Um, it's about having well-oiled processes, but also prepped and ready um, partners and support. So if it requires some sort of forensic help, you know, you might not have all these skill sets inside your team. And we've got quite a small team, so, you know, we do need to rely on partners. So we make sure that the partners are ready to go and, and know what to do. You know, we spend a lot of time with them understanding what they're actually there to protect in the event of a, a crisis. So you briefly mentioned it earlier about knowing your attack surface. Um, one of the things that springs to mind is you know, looking at your supply chain and its associated threats. And this is something that we advocate for in our clients as one of their key recommendations in terms of managing risk. But when I think about the supply chain for Virgin Atlantic, I can't even begin to comprehend it. So as an aviation company with a huge and complex supply chain, what are some of the cybersecurity and cyber risk areas that you are focusing on to build resilience and strengthen that supply chain management? Another good question. Yeah, the supply chain is huge for the company. Um, information security's view of it isn't always as up to date and as accurate as you know, the rest of the business because partners change all the time, new agreements come in, you know, we, we offer new services, so it's always constantly changing. Um, so I think the first thing we need to do is plug into the procurement space to see exact and, and legal to see exactly what the, the changing landscape looks like. We get the opportunity to do some due diligence up front. Um, often that's questionnaire based, and I think it needs to move on. You know, that's one area I think that a lot of companies are going outside of their perceived remit. To, to, to view risk posture and previous event information and even sort of, you know, try and establish closer relationships with the key ones. Um, so just like we've got the attack um, surface assurance work, we've also got supply chain risk posture work. So to look across all of the companies that provide us with a key service. Look at whether they've had any incidents. Look at if we can see any. I guess it comes. It does. It does dovetail a little bit with the attack surface um, uh, services as well, because we sort of dovetail the two together to give us a, a posture. So we might pick up on the fact that they've got some services publicly open to the internet um, that shouldn't be, but we've only found that because we've done a bit of digging on risk in attack surface. We would do that more for our key suppliers, not for everyone. Otherwise, you can imagine it's a huge, um, huge database of of, um, of companies. But we, need, I think, the industry is very, very good at coming together. So when we've seen uh, incidents occur within our family of of providers, they're on the phone to us, or we're on the phone to them, 
we understand what's happened very quickly. We share indicators of compromise. You know, we we make sure our systems internally have got then that consistent posture and, and level of protection as a result of that information. Um, and we also we've also tried to help out. So when we recognise things like business email compromise attacks. We've seen them come from our suppliers. We're, we're back on the phone to the suppliers to make them aware of that. And often we're the, we're the first um, alert they've, they've received. So I think it's a bit of a community effort. You know, we really need to build those relationships. Mm. You know, people, this is why the people element is so important. You know, you could automate as much of that as you like, but you know, ultimately it's someone picking up the phone mm-hmm. um, and building that relationship with your, your counterpart and your, and your supply chain. Yes. And do you, when you say uh, communication uh, between your community in the aviation space, do you mean between your suppliers or do you mean other organisations within aviation space? You know, so other airlines, for example. Absolutely both. Yeah. Um, In fact, walking into this meeting today, I was just having a chat with my counterpart at uh, one of our competitors, shall I say. So, yeah, we, we share information, you know, we... I believe we're a very close-knit community. I need to do a lot more work in that space, being new to aviation. You know, all of my contacts are in other industries. But, um, yeah, so I'm starting to build up that network um, because that's really, really important how we come together as an industry, um, you know, to to address the challenges we've all got across each of our individual companies. So in terms of the communication piece... How have you seen that strengthen? I mean, obviously, we've just come out the back of the pandemic. Has it become stronger since then? Absolutely. I think it was always quite a strong industry. Um, but having gone through that shared challenge and now the geopolitical angle, the industry is you know, under immense pressure from a security perspective. So those relationships have definitely strengthened and become a lot closer as a result of that shared challenge. We've also come to rely, I guess, a lot more on our strategic partners through that. You know, with reduction in team sizes through the the, the pandemic, and you know, um, s- staff being put into that sort of standby mode, um, waiting to come back when when it's appropriate. It's limited our our ability to. You know, respond in the same ways as we would. So we've we've had to rely a lot more on you know the sort of shared resource pool almost. Um, you know, providers being probably one of the most important aspects of that. And what is that strategy going forward for you? Um, I think to rely on fewer but more strategic relationships. So with a small, we're still a small team, and we still rely on a lot of um, suppliers within our delivery model. But I think going back to what we first said at the start of the conversation, having had the chance to look at the strategy with a fresh pair of eyes, we've realised that our environment is far too complicated. You know, we've got too many technologies, too many relationships, um, and that's a real overhead on a small team. So part of our strategy is to have fewer technologies, fewer relationships, but really invest in those. So one of the conversations I'm having at the moment is around point solutions versus the platform approach. And so for me, simplification and consolidation of what we have 
is is absolutely at the core of our strategic direction going forwards. So, and there are many benefits to that. I can I can wax lyrical about what I've what I've seen, but essentially, platform for me is an accelerator of a lot of our goals. We want to simply uh, to deliver simply better security. That's really the, the north star for us. Um, and the way that we do that is through acceleration of maturity. So take all those point solutions, consolidate them into a platform. It, it ticks the goals of you know, reduce complexity, um, increase visibility and manageability, but also unlocks all those opportunities around things like zero trust, SASE, you know, network evolution, um, you know, the sort of perimeterless environments that we all know are coming, you know. So for me, it's 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 unlocking what's next. Yeah. So it's having simplifying security, having less relationships, but making sure the relationships that you do have are a lot more strategic and well developed, I guess. Okay, so switching gears now to look at talent within the cybersecurity space. So there is a well-documented talent gap. I know this is something that I've done presentations about and conferences, being a woman in cyber. And Virgin Atlantic actually released a blog recently that stated 55% of employees reported that their organisation are suffering from a skills gap. What is your approach to tackling this within your organisation and what types of initiatives are you championing? So I think finding talent is still a problem for most organisations and I agree with that survey. It's always been a challenge. In previous roles, we've had the maturity within the current team to allow for more perhaps more creativity. So I'm a massive champion of pulling talent from any part of the business, um, no matter what the background, no matter what function they're in. I think information security is one of those subjects that's broad enough that it can attract from from absolutely anywhere. So I've brought people in from um, people functions, from other parts of um, the technology team. I've even brought people in from, you know, sort of, financial fraud and think all sorts of all sorts of different um, parts of the business I think the most important thing is attitude as I'm sure a lot of people would say um, but also the the passion needs to be there to protect the business everything else after that you can teach um, if you've got the time to develop people um, it's not always the case that you've got the time you know some organizations you need to build from the ground up very quickly you know, some of the roles I've had, it's, it's a case of coming into a completely greenfield site, you know, building a team of sort of 20 people as quick as you possibly can to, 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 to bridge the gap. Other teams you come into, it's quite established. Um, there's a high level of maturity. So then you need to think more creatively around how you keep people <laughs> because keeping them is a lot easier than trying to find them. Um, but I think they can come from any background. So I think just being open-minded. So going back to my introduction, John, so you've had quite an interesting career path into being a CISO and uh, you didn't start out your journey in cybersecurity, let's put it that way. Can you uh, <laughs> share with our listeners how you started your career in InfoSec? Yeah, this is a very unorthodox, long and windy road to where I am today. Um, so yeah, early on in my career, I followed my passion for sort of sports and, and I entered the the leisure industry as a personal trainer, um, opening clubs in London, 
um, which was a very trendy thing to do at the time um, back then. Um, so I was kind of on a bit of a uh, on, a, on a bit of a wave. Um, so I was always very much in sort of like the, the the people roles early on. So I think that's where some of those skills were honed. Um, we were also encouraged to sell a lot within those environments. So my role moved from sort of more the training side to the management side of the of the of the facilities and ended up opening um, clubs all over uh, all over London and, and surrounding counties. Um, but I thought that wasn't really like a proper grown up job. I thought that was a young man's game, and this was when I was about I don't know, early twenties. So you um, had the foresight to try and move careers early on. So I, I sort of tried to pivot, but didn't really know what to do. Um, so I went from sort of sports and, and health clubs into sales and marketing of similar venues, and then from sales and marketing, losing my way completely, thinking, right, what am I doing now? Fell into a recruitment role. Mm. Um, that was recruiting IT staff predominantly, and of course, I, I was you know using my my selling and my personality to um, to place those roles, and I was very successful at that. But through that success, I was getting some good relationships um, built with IT companies and IT directors, and I was starting to think these guys these guys have got it good. You know, um, this looks like a proper proper job. Um, but had no skills, so then, you know, started to build up some knowledge on the sideline, reading books, building computers, doing all those usual things. Um, and luckily got my first opportunity actually at a small uh, air charter firm. Um, in, in so, so back in the travel industry, even then. Um, and that was really my first role, you know, learned, I, I built my own office. I ran my own electricity into the into this basement, um, and then started to build out the network and computers and the, the sort of the yeah, the IT infrastructure for that for that business. And from there, moved th- to another travel operator um, in a bigger role, you know, opening my eyes to to more technology. And it kind of went from there. And I, then I sort of started to get into the security side. At one of the businesses I was working for that had a, a few troubles, shall we say, and I was, you know, on the investigation side as to what was going on. And it really sort of started to interest me as to, you know, why this had happened and what we can do to protect ourselves and was starting to look at standards um, that would help us structure that. Um, and then did that for a few years and, and realised that was, you know, where my interest was going to be. Yeah, and I, I think you said something key there, which resonated with me, which is, you know, we need people within this industry. There is a talent gap. So what you need if you want to enter it is just a willingness to learn and, you know, a willingness to show that you're interested mm-hmm. and that can take you so far. And that definitely helped me at the beginning. But I realise that's hard as well, all right? You know, you can have all the enthusiasm, you can have those basic skills, but you still need an opportunity. Yes. And I think the opportunity is the really hard bit to grasp. So for me, I took the opportunity in the business I was in. I think that's probably the easiest way of trying to do it is, is use those skills to convince someone internally that you, you need to move. Um, and hopefully they'll give you the opportunity like I was given. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Opportunity and willingness to learn. So, John, we like to leave our listeners with a final piece of advice or thought to take away with them. What would you say to our listeners? 
Well, I think let's continue on that opportunity theme. Um, I would say that anybody wanting to get into information security, it's such a broad field. It's always evolving. We can take the talent from anywhere. So if you've got an interest, absolutely follow it up. Try and you know take your own destiny in your own hands, um, and don't limit yourself. You know if I can if I can get to where I am today, then anybody can do that, right? So, um, and for those that are in the seat already, the hot seat, um, I would say. Just try and try and remember to enjoy it. You know, it can get a little bit warm underneath every now and again. Um, but you know, we've we've got a very unique opportunity to help the business we're in. Um, and I think, you know, leadership in this area is a is a privilege. And our going back to what we said about automation, people are definitely the uh, the most valuable asset we've got. So don't forget, you know, to develop the teams we've got and to give them your time because I think that's really important. Thank you John. So we've looked into the evolving role of the CISO and its associated challenges and highlighted collaboration between the CISO and the C-suite as well. We've discussed how you can innovate with confidence to fulfill your organization's aims and finally touched upon your own journey and also tackling that cyber talent gap. Thank you, John, so much for coming in and chatting with us today. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to our cybersecurity podcast to help you stay ahead of the cyber trends and issues that matter. In the meantime, you can check out our website at pwc.co.uk forward slash cybersecurity. See you next time. Mm-hmm.